Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in chapter number 11. The book of Acts in chapter number 11. We're continuing with our series of how did we get our English Bible. Going through the history of the Bible. And remember the purpose of this is to give you confidence that the Bible that you have in your hand is indeed the very word of God that God intended you to have. And it's always good to have evidence. Now I understand that we could believe by faith and we can make it as simple as that. But we also live in a world here that asks questions. And so we're supposed to be ready always to have an answer for the reason of the hope that's within us with meekness and fear. And that Whereas we're not expecting you to remember facts and figures and uh, we're not trying to give you lots of things to memorize. What we are trying to do is build up a case for you that you have confidence for yourself that this isn't some dogma that we came up with, that we're sticking with some imaginary book, that we actually have evidence, we have history on our side, that we can look through some of these things. And again, the last two weeks, what we've been covering is the silent years, that a period of history where people said, well, we had just oral tradition instead of having any any manuscript evidence of a Bible, and we went for the last two weeks that we did. So we've defined some terms, we talked about preservation, we explained some of the evidence that we had before the 400s AD, and now we're going to start adding another piece of the puzzle. What was the institution, what did God use to help preserve his word, and to make sure what lineage do we have, what line do we have that carried through this idea of the preservation of scripture in that to give us the scriptures that we have in our hand. And we're going to find that today here dealing with the headquarters of the New Testament church, which is an important doctrine that even if we weren't doing the history of the Bible, that for the idea of the history of the church and the history of the Bible, this is still knowledge that you would like to have. And so if you wouldn't mind, take your copy of the word of God and turn with me. Um, Serena, go get my batteries really quick. <laughs> All right. And uh, we don't need... Here, Serena. <laughs> good. Technical difficulties. But good thing is, is that we have our scriptures and that's where I was wanting you to look at. Anyways, the book of Acts chapter number 11. The book of Acts chapter number 11. And notice with me in verse number 26. Acts chapter 11 and verse number 26, and it said, And when he had found him, now this he that he's speaking there is Barnabas, finding Saul, who we're going to know as the Apostle Paul, when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that the whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark that last phrase that we find there in the book of Acts chapter 11 and verse 26? And the disciples were first called Christians 
are first, uh, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And if you don't mind, highlight that. And we're going to cover this idea of the church of Antioch, the headquarters of the New Testament church. And dealing with this as we find the scriptures here, that it was here at Antioch that the Christians were first called Christians here in the city of Antioch. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just asking that you would give us understanding, that you would let us see the light of history to be able to have confidence in what you have done and preserving your word for us to have. Thank you. Just set things in order. Let it be clear and help me to be the instrument that I ought to be at this time, that you would just give me the clarity of mind, the strength of body. I just surrender them all to you and ask that you use me as your instrument even now to get your work accomplished. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good. We're going to cover that passage in detail in just a bit, but if you don't mind, let's kind of start off with some other parts of history. Let's start off with the idea of the attempts to destroy the Bible. There's been no other book in all of history that has been under attack like this book. If you don't mind, I'm just going to hit some of the high uh, points or low points in history where they try to destroy the Bible just to show you, just to give you a taste of how the Bible's been under attack from all of history. We find that the first attempt to rid the earth of the Bible was by Diocletian, a Roman emperor. In 302 AD, he issued an edict decreeing the burning of all Bibles. Now, how evil do you have to be to say, I outlaw the Bibles. I don't want any Bible in my realm. And he ordered the destruction of all the Bibles and all of the Christians. Diocletian killed so many Christians and destroyed so many Bibles that he put up a victory steal and declared that Christianity had been destroyed. Now again, how many Christians and how many Bibles did you have to destroy in order for you to declare that? That was a lot. By the way, for those people who said, why don't we have any manuscripts before 400 AD? Well, because Diocletian burned them all. Does that make sense? <laughs> he burned as many Bibles as he could get a hold of. No wonder we don't have a lot of Bibles from that period because he burned them all. Now, why does a Roman emperor decree to burn all the Bibles if there are no Bibles before 400 AD. I mean, you have to have something to burn if you're going to outlaw it and decide it's going to burn. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had power over the known world through the Middle Ages from about 500 AD for the fall of the Roman Empire to about 1580 AD. Now, with this, the Catholics hated the Bible. You had Pope Nicholas I at 860 AD who passed the decree forbidding anyone to read the Bible. So in 860 AD, the Catholic Church said it is illegal to read the Bible. In fact, the Papal Bull, that's what they called their decrees, the Papal Bull, uh, they, um, they said, um, anyone who reads the Bible, you're going to hell. That's always nice for a church to say. Well, to add to it, you had uh, in 19, or sorry, 1198 AD, Pope Innocent III, by the way, if you're not familiar with him, he is probably one of the most evil popes that had ever existed. Pope Innocent III, he issued a decree that said all who read the Bible should be put to death. So not only are you going to hell, but if you read your Bible according to the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, this hasn't been rescinded, this is still a law, that if you read your Bible according to the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to get killed. Well, that's always nice. Why? Well, they knew that if someone read their Bible, that the things that the Catholic Church did could not fly. 
Which is why they did everything they could to keep the Bible from the hands of the people. And you're going to find that this is true until some Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther got a, held, got a hold of the real scriptures and then shipwrecked the whole train and caused it to derail. We'll talk more about that a couple lessons into this. Queen Mary, who was a Roman Catholic, Queen of England, who was also known as Bloody Mary, ruled England from 1553 to 1558. She ordered Christians to be burned at the stakes and their Bibles were used as the kindling to start those fires. Now again, if you can imagine being a figure of history, we know that there are some people that say, man, if I could be anyone in history, that's who I'd be. Well, if there was someone you wouldn't want to be, wouldn't she mark the top of the list that not only did she kill Christians, she used their Bible to start the fire. That's always a good start, right? And so you can learn more about her and history and the martyrs of England. We'll take hits more of that later on. The French infidel Voltaire, who died in 1778, once boasted that Christianity would be a dead religion within 100 years of his day. So just to show that God has a sense of humor, <coughs> um, we'll cover that in a second, Voltaire wrote many volumes against Christianity against the Bible. And just to show that God had a sense of humor, within 50 years of his death, his own printing presses inside of his house were being used to print Bibles. And so what God said was, nana, nana, boo, boo. He says, I'll show you. Just to show what God can do. 92 volumes of Voltaire's works once sold at an auction for less than $100. So imagine that. Here's a guy who wrote 92, vol or 92 volumes and all of those volumes as a set sold less than $100. In that same auction, an ancient Bible was, or manuscript was sold for half a million dollars. Just to show that God is able to take care of his word no matter what the opposition may have. Now by 1968, there were many manuscripts discovered that support the Bible. All of them dated before the time of the critics of the Bible that state there was nothing but oral tradition. So here are, by 1968, we found some more since then. But in 1968, here was the tally of all the manuscripts that we had before 400 AD. We had 88 papyrus manuscripts. We had 267 unseal manuscripts. We had over 2,700 minuscule manuscripts. We had 2,153 lectionary manuscripts. Now, that's already a lot. On top of that, we had more than 10,000 Latin manuscripts, all predating the Alexandrian manuscripts. We'll talk more about that next week. And then we had eight or 9,000 other version manuscripts. Now this total that we have does not count wax tablets and it doesn't count the ostraca. So there are plenty of evidence that all predate 400 AD. Okay, So all we're doing is saying that there was a lot of attack, but God had plenty of evidence that he preserved his word. Now as a point of comparison, the most ancient surviving Greek book is Homer's Iliad. There are 643 Greek copies of this book. So here there's less than a thousand, and yet for the proof and evidence of the Bible, we have thousands 
of evidence. We have plenty of evidence to say that the Bible that we have is indeed the very Bible God intended us to have. Now with that, let's start talking about the Antiochian line. How about this lineage of scripture? We're going to talk about this in detail in just a second, but I'm trying to give you a point, the understanding where is the lineage that we got our Bible. We would call this the Antiochian line. Preservation of scripture goes through two different separate streams. We have the first one the, that goes from Africa to Western Europe. Basically from Alexandria to Rome. This is not the good stream. And then we have the Antiochian stream from, that goes from Antioch, Syria to Eastern Europe. These are two different lineages and these two never meet. They never cross. They are continually, even to this day, a separate lineage. We have the Antiochian line and we have the Alexandrian line. We're going to talk in detail the Alexandrian line next week. This week we're concentrating on the Antiochian line. Now the Antiochian line has produced every missionary and evangelistic movement in the history of the New Testament church. Now that speaks for itself that every missionary, every evangelistic, every revival movement has come from this lineage of scripture. Whereas the Alexandrian line has produced no missionary or no evangelistic movement. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says this, Wherefore laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now this passage has quite a bit into it. But notice in verse number 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you grow thereby. How do we grow thereby? By the word of God. Now notice this. All believers are told to do two things. First, desire the milk of the word. So all Christians should desire the milk of the word and Understand that it is sincere. That word sincere means genuine and true. So all Christians, as soon as they're saved, should have a desire for God's word and understand that it's true. It is God's word. Second, or 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14. These things write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now God has intended that the church, his New Testament church, is the one that keeps God's word, keeps the truth, and keeps it preserved. That's going to be important to know. That's why we're going through the Antiochian line. The Bible says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so we're understanding that brand new Christians or any Christian should desire the milk of the word. Understanding this is how we grow. And that we understand that we should see it as sincere, as genuine and true. We understand that it is the New Testament church with the responsibility of making sure that God uses to preserve his lineage. And that it is God's word that is truth. And that's what we're keeping here. God's church is going to desire God's word. That makes sense. Now, you don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to know much about church history to find out what God's church is inside of a town. How do you find God's church? Well, 
if you look at the church and they have an emphasis on anything other than God's word, it's not God's church. That makes sense, doesn't it? If the church emphasizes God's word, then it's God's church. It makes it pretty simple. Do they teach the Bible? Do they emphasize the Bible? Are they opening up the Bible and teaching you? That's the idea here that God's people should desire what does God's word say? Not what someone thinks, not their opinion and not entertainment. They want God's word. Now, early translations from the pure Greek text were made in the Syriac in 150 AD and the Latin in 157 AD. We've talked about this a couple different sessions, but again, we're building up a case now. As pure Christianity spread across the Roman Empire, these Bibles flourished and were later staunchly defended against the inroads of perverted Christianity with its perverted Bibles. Here's a quote uh, the old Latin versions were used longest by the Western Christians who would not bow to the authority of Rome. For example, the Donatists, the Irish in Ireland, Britain, around the continent, the Abinigenes. <coughs> um, this is from David Fuller in his uh, book, Which Bible? The Waldensians were among the first of the peoples of Europe to obtain a translation of the Holy Scriptures hundreds of years before the Reformation. So what this is talking about is that even though the Roman Catholic Church was dominating the world, we had pockets of people who held true to these to the real text and they kept to it and they loved the Bible and they rejected all of the other false translations that were out there. They possessed the Bible and the manuscript in their native tongue, meaning it was translated into the Walt Disneyan language. Walt Disneyan. I don't try to, I, every time I teach this, I keep trying to say the Walt Disneyan. The Walt Disneyans are quite different than the Walt Dinstians that we're trying to talk about, okay? They had the truth unadulterated and this rendered them the special objects of uh, hatred and persecution. If you study the period of this time, you would see even in Catholic history, those stupid Waldensian people, if we could kill them all, we would. We hate them. They're always around. They're like little pests. And that's the Catholic historians. So even they admit that there was those group of people that just <laughs> wanted to do their own thing and follow after God's word. Now, for a thousand years, witnesses for the truth maintained the ancient faith in a most wonderful manner and preserved it uncorrupted through the ages of darkness. It is therefore evident that the translators in 1611 had before them four Bibles which had come under Walt Disneyan influence. What do we mean by this? That here is a group of people, the Waldistians, who had kept God's word and they had preserved it and they had kept it. And so by the time the translators of the authorized version in 1611 had the opportunity to um, translate, they had four different versions that had been preserved through the Waldistian people. What were they? They were the Duodate in Italian, the Olivetan in French, the Lutheran Bible in German, and the Genevan Bible in English. So these were the four Bibles that were the preserved text and four different languages. Now once again, this is used that we could double check our work. We translate it from Greek 
in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament, then we can use these other works to double check. Hey, look, it's exactly what we were supposed to have. Here's a way to check our work to make sure that we got it right, that we're not just making things up. So these are four important Bibles of history, and all of them came under, from the influence of the Walt Disneyan people, and these are the people that were used to help preserve God's Word in the pockets throughout uh, Europe during this time. Now we have every reason to believe that they had access to at least six Waldistian Bibles written in the old Waldistian vernacular, meaning that of the common language of those people at that time. So they had the four and the four different languages. Then they had six others that were written in the Waldistian language that they could use as checks and balances. The Waldistian uh, people, they recognized that the old Latin, or the, the Latin Vulgate of the Roman Catholic Church was a corrupt text, and they rejected it. They said, there's no way we're touching that. That's garbage. It's corrupt. Don't touch that. The Codex Templinus, discovered a few years ago in, Bo in a Bohemian monastery, has been proved to be a copy of an early Walt Disneyan version and represent the text of the early German printed Bible. This German Germanic version was essentially the same as the traditional text used in Luther's translation and in the authorized King James Version. So again, we're still finding evidence of Bibles, and guess what? They don't contradict our Bible, they confirm that our Bible is true. It also contains all of the disputed passages in John's epistles and the gospel record of John. Now remember what I told you earlier a couple sessions ago that all of the ancient um, versions that they found every verse except for three? Well in these, the ancient one that they found in Bohemia as well as the other ones, they have every verse in there. So we have confirmation that all of the verses are there that's supposed to be there. Now, the student of church history should be aware that the Donatists, the Abinigenes, and the Waldisnians were forebears of the Anabaptist and the Baptist movement, meaning that they are part of our lineage of Baptistic people. And so, once again, our lineage goes as far back as them. So, the Catholics, when they're saying, those Waldisnian people over there, they have their own Bible and they don't do what we say, they've been around before us, yeah, that, that's part of our lineage. And that there's always been a Baptistic people. Now that makes sense. These people never embraced a clergy-laity system. We'll cover more of that next session. But the idea of laity means the common people. So the Catholics had put together an idea that we are clergy and we're smarter and more spiritual than the regular folks. Whereas the Walt Disneyan people said, we're just regular folks like everyone else. We're trying to read the Bible, let's go that they have never embraced infant baptism and these people had never embraced salvation by works. They taught opposite of that. These are the people connected with the preservation of the pure Bible texts that came from Antioch through Syria and Eastern Europe and eventually through Germany and England. There has always been a people with the right Bible and as a result of having the right Bible, guess what? They have right doctrine. That makes sense. You have the right Bible, you're going to have the right belief. The Greek New Testament was preserved in the Greek-speaking branch of Christendom even during the times of apostasy and darkness. Roman Emperor Constantine I moved the seat of his government in the city of Byzantium, renaming it Constantinople. So it's an ancient city. It's gone through uh, three different names. It's now called Istanbul, not Constantinople, but 
For a while it was Byzantium. When Constantine took over, it was Constantinople. The Roman Empire consequently was divided into two legs, resulting in the emergence of the two great branches of Christian-dumb. Not Christianity, Christian-dumb. The Western Latin church was centered at Rome, and the Eastern or Byzantine church was centered at Constantinople. Rome, which grew out of Alexandria, Egypt, promoted. So what are the things that the Roman branch promoted, the wrong branch? Well, they promoted salvation by works. They promoted salvation by water baptism and priests ruling over what they called the laity. This is what the West or the Western branch, the branch of Rome, this is what they taught. Whereas the Antiochian, the Byzantine branch, this is what they taught. They believed salvation by grace, baptism for believers only, and the priesthood of all believers, that we all have access to God. Now, again, right Bible, right doctrine. Now, the Byzantine period stood until the fall of Constantinople by the Muslims in 1453. Now, this is an important event. We'll cover this later. But basically, they had the copies of all the ancient true text. And when the Muslims took over and they fled for their lives back into Europe, guess what they brought with them? The true text. And eventually it got into the hands of people like Martin Luther and a lot of the reformers. Which, by the way, the Baptistic people said, hey, we've had this the whole time. Now, for most of its history, the eastern branch of the church built in the darkness of apostasy. Yet, within its monasteries, the monks continued to reproduce thousands of manuscripts of the pure Greek New Testament. How can this be when the very scriptures they were copying taught against infant baptism, Mariology, the use of icons, which the Eastern Church began to embrace, but which the smaller groups we had named within that church refused and resisted? So what we're talking about is that the Greek Orthodox Church, which came from Byzantium, a lot of those people began to be corrupt as well. However, inside of the monasteries, they were determined to continue to write the true text and copy it, even though they didn't believe what they were writing. Now, this is important. Because God used these men to preserve his word... <coughs> Preservation of the Word of God went through this Byzantium church, which they were committed to copying the true text. The Eastern Church, but also those who translated the King James Bible, preserved God's Word even though they didn't believe certain things into it. Now, this gives us more confidence about the accuracy of their work to copy exactly what they said. Because even though they didn't believe it, they said, this is what it said, and this is what we're going to write down. We appreciate people who are honest instead of trying to change it to their point of view. The people who translated the King James Bible translated parts of the Bible that violated their doctrinal belief. Meaning they wrote down some stuff that's in the Bible that they personally didn't believe, but because the text said it, we're going to write it down. This gives us more reason to recognize how true they were to render the text uh, they had before them accurately. Now, we're going to talk more about that later on, but we're just giving an overview now. Now, what came out of this Eastern Church was an apostolic heritage. Greek and Asia Minor were the first strongholds of Christianity. The missionary heritage came out of this Eastern Church. 
It was this branch of professing Christianity that refuted heresies as they arose by appealing to the text. So whenever someone would come up with some heresy, they say, all right, what does the Bible say? That's the right answer. Well, this heresy comes out. Well, what does the Bible say? Let's look at it according to the Bible. We appreciate a group of people willing to do that. Now, while Rome was embracing every pagan heresy, every false doctrine that came across the Eastern Church, though they didn't do everything the way that God would have them to do it, they still resisted the heresies of the Roman Church because they were true to God's Word. Now, with it, let's kind of cover this Antiochian line, which we're, we're giving an overview now. We have the Syrian text. We have the Antiochian text. The Byzantine text. The traditional text, which would go to the received text. So this is our lineage of our scriptures. That they're all related. The Syrian text, the Antiochian text, the Byzantine text, the traditional text, and the received text. So this would be the branch that we'd, we would get our Bible from. Again, it started from Antioch Syrian. The Antiochian text which spread. The Byzantine people were there to preserve the text. After a while they would call it the traditional text because look this is what the text traditionally says. As we look at all the Greek text and all of the Bibles across the world they all say the same thing. This is traditionally what people believe which then was gathered together into the received text meaning that people said alright let's gather this together into one volume. This is the text that we have received from God. This is the proper lineage. All of these are the same, are different names from the lineage that we have of the text we, we have going on. Now, this is what we're talking about this week. Next week, we're going to talk about the other side, speaking about the Alexandrian text. This is the other lineage, the lineage that we would reject, the Alexandrian text, and we'll talk about that in detail next week. As for now, these two branches of the church bring two types of Bible text which all modern and all English versions have been taken from. Every Bible we have comes from one of these two lineages. Either they come from the correct lineage or the corrupt lineage. Now with this, let's go to the Bible study tonight. I would like you to take your copy of the Word of God and let's go through the history of Antioch, this headquarters of the Christian church, and let's see what the Bible has to say about this city of Antioch. Now, we're going to look at several texts. We're going to stay in the book of Acts, but I want you to see for yourself these references. Whenever you look at the Bible, we want to see how God refers to a town, to a city, to a movement. Let's see what the Bible has to say of Antioch. We start with the law of first mention. Where is the city of Antioch first mentioned at? Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Acts, chapter number 6. The book of Acts, chapter number 6. Now, this happens inside of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ has already ascended up to heaven. The church has been empowered at Pentecost, and people are beginning to know Christ as their Savior. Now, in the midst of this, there was a dis uh, disputation that came up dealing with the widows not being taken care of. And so the first century disciples, uh, the first century Christians, uh, gathered together and said, listen, look among you of, of seven men of honest report that we could appoint to this business so we could give to ourselves uh, to uh, prayer and the word of God. And so notice with me in verse 5. <clears throat> 
And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip of Procreus, and of Nacar, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Notice that word Antioch. Of whom they sat before the apostles, and when they had prayed, there laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great, um, excuse me, a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. Now the first mention of Antioch in the word of God is a man who was serving God from Antioch. So he was from Antioch. He's now in Jerusalem and he's serving God. And he became a leader of the church and more people got saved as a result. The first mention of Antioch is here's a guy who comes from Antioch begins to serve. Let's now look at the next mention. Acts chapter 11 if you don't mind. So as some time goes on, the history of the church begins to move from Jerusalem and begins to go to a different city. And the book of Acts chapter 11, we begin to see that move. Acts chapter 11 in verse number 19. Acts chapter 11 in verse number 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phinis, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Now the next mention of Antioch in the word of God has people fleeing to Antioch and starting a church there. Remember there was a great persecution actually led by Saul of Tarsus. And with this persecution people begin to flee from, from Jerusalem. But God is doing this to actually scatter the people. And as they travel from and trying to flee from persecution they settled in different cities. And while they were there they would preach the Bible. And eventually there was a church that started in the city of Antioch as a result of the persecutions that happened in Jerusalem. So the next mention we have is people fleeing um, Jerusalem and settling in Antioch and starting a church there. Acts 11.22 And the tidings of these things came into the ears of the church that was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. So what happened is that as this church in Antioch began to grow, the people at the church of Jerusalem heard about it and said, man, someone needs to go check this out. See what's happening. We hear good things about Antioch and this church there. So you know what? Let's go send Barnabas. Verse 23. Who... When he came, this is Barnabas, had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all with purpose of heart that they would cleave unto the Lord. Now the next mention of Antioch, Barnabas goes to check them out. And while he was there, guess what? He becomes their pastor. And he begins to pastor this church. And the church begins to grow. Now as it begins to grow, Barnabas begins to say, wait a second. These people are asking some good questions. And they need someone a little bit better than me. And so the next mention of Antioch, notice with me in verse 25. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek 
Saul. Now, as Barnabas in verse 24, was, many people were added to the Lord. Many people were saved. Barnabas said, you know what? I need something, someone a little bit better than me. And God put in his mind Saul. He said, Saul was someone who knew the Old Testament Scriptures. When I had talked to him, he was someone who was on fire for the Lord. He had been discipled by God. He knew quite a bit. You know what? I'm going to go get Barnab- or Saul. Now, by the way, someone said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play second fiddle well. Imagine how much grace and humility it took for Barnabas to say, you know what? These people are grown beyond my ability to pastor them. I'm going to go find Saul and I'm going to allow him to come and help those people. And so he goes and picks up Saul. So Barnabas goes to retrieve Saul of Tarsus, who's going to become Paul the apostle. And Paul becomes the pastor of the church of Antioch. Now think about this. This church of Antioch is started because of persecution, but people came with the word of God. A church was started. They started to win people to the Lord. They started to grow so much that the church of Jerusalem heard about it. The church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas. Hey, Barnabas, go check out what's going there. He goes there and says, man, this is a great work. I'm going to stay. And he became the pastor and pastored those folks. As the church began to grow, he said, whoa, whoa, I need help. I need someone to take, do this. I, I, I need someone to help me out. So he goes grab Saul and Saul comes and he begins to pastor the people and the church grows even more. What a great heritage that it has. We're not done yet. Verse 26, and when he, Paul had, or Barnabas had found him, Saul, he brought him, Saul, to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they, the church of Antioch, assembled themselves within the church and taught much people. And because of this, guess what? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So the very first place where the disciples were starting to be Christ-like and the people said there's something different about them, it was not the church of Jerusalem. It was the church of Antioch. Because of the teaching of Barnabas, because of the teaching of Saul, for a whole year they pastored those folks and those folks grew and they began to follow after God and they started to be Christ-like and the people said, you want to know what a true Christian looks like? You go to the church of Antioch. What a great testimony that it had that people were first called Christians there. So Antioch was the place where the disciples were first called Christians. And verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. So as Paul and Barnabas are pastoring the church, people are hearing about it, and different prophets and preachers came from Jerusalem and they came to Antioch to join the church. Now people are coming to Antioch and the center of the Christian world is relocated from Jerusalem to Antioch. And from this point on in the book of Acts, the center of the Christian world branches from Antioch. Now we're not done yet, but we can see it's now relocated. This is now where the emphasis of God's work is being done, not in Jerusalem, but in Antioch of Syria. Now the original manuscripts are now gathered and they're copied at Antioch, which begins to show our lineage, what we were talking about today, that they brought in these uh, different writings. As Paul is writing, they would get a copy and they would start to gather them together. Remember, it's at Antioch in 150 AD that they first translate uh, the Bible into the Syriac language. They had to have the scriptures gathered together in that one place in order to copy it. 
Verse 28. And there stood up one of name um, Agabus and signified that by the Spirit there, that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came, came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples... Every man according to his ability determined to send relief unto the brethren that dwelt in Judea. Now this is pretty significant. Which they did and sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what's going on? Well there was a great famine that came to the land of Jerusalem. And the church of Antioch gave a special offering and helped support the church of Jerusalem. So notice this. Jerusalem the church needs help and it's Antioch that's sending relief. In fact they send Barnabas and Saul to go back and say hey we hear you guys are struggling. Here we raised up an offering. Can this help you out? So notice it's Antioch that's now helping support the church of Jerusalem. Notice as it goes on, chapter 13. All right, look with me if you don't mind. Again, we're just seeing this lineage of Antioch and the history that it has. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on him, they, the church of Antioch, sent them, Barnabas and Saul, away. What's going on? Well, the church of Antioch are now sending out missionaries. The first missionary journey sent into the world was sent from Antioch. Now, once again, we're showing this lineage of where we got our Bible from. And just looking at what the Bible said, the church of Antioch is where God is working. It's how God is operating in this world. And the very first missionary journey, meaning missionaries sent on purpose, not because of persecution, not because they're fleeing, not because they're going to go join another church. The first missionary journey, meaning that you're sending out people on the purpose to win people, disciple them, and to start churches and go do it again, was sent from Antioch. Verse number 26, uh, chapter 14, sorry, chapter 14 in verse 26. We see another mention of Antioch, chapter 14 in verse 26. And the, thence sailed to Antioch, meaning Barnabas and Saul, then thus sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Verse 27, and when they were come and gathered uh, gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened up the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode a long time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas come back and report to their sending church of Antioch. And they show up and said, here's what God has done. God has opened up doors. People got saved. Churches have been started. We're coming back to report. You're our sending church. You're our authority. And we're letting you know what God has done. So again, it's through the church of Antioch that the missionaries are sent back. And it's through the church of Antioch that the missionaries have submitted themselves under the authority of a local church. And it's Antioch that is doing all of this. They are the center of what God is doing in the world at this time. 
Notice as we go on in chapter 15, a, dis, a, a thing came up in chapter 15 where people begin to have false doctrine. And as this false doctrine began to come to the church of Antioch, they're not buying into it. In fact, they're sending representatives to go to Jerusalem and say, hey, we have a problem with this doctrine that's coming up. Notice with me in chapter 15, verse 23. Chapter 15 and verse 23. And they, this is the church of Antioch, wrote letters by them, uh, Paul and Barnabas, after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Sorry, I, let me rewind. The church of Jerusalem after this Jerusalem council is sending a word back to Antioch about what they've decided. So, And they're sending it through Paul and Barnabas who's going to go back to their home church. Um, verse number 24. For as much as we have heard that certain which went down from us, meaning that there were some people from the church of Jerusalem had come up to Antioch, that went up from us, have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law to which we gave no such commandment. So these false preachers came up and said, listen, if you're truly saved, you're going to get circumcised. If you're truly saved, you're going to keep the law. And the church of Jerusalem said, hey, we didn't send them. They're not from us. You do not have to keep the law in order to be saved. Aren't you glad that someone wrote that down? You don't have to keep the law to be saved. And this is from the church of Jerusalem. And it said, verse number 25, And it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things." that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So that they which were dis, uh, so when they were dismissed, they, Paul and Barnabas and those that traveled with them, came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. Now Antioch had to send representatives to the church of Jerusalem to straighten out doctrine. <laughs> and uh, they came back and Jerusalem said, you're right, we're wrong, we're sorry, those guys shouldn't have come. Now notice with me in verse 40, we could see something else with the church of Antioch. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Now the church of Antioch sent out missionaries again. This time they sent out two different teams. They sent Barnabas and John Mark, and they sent out Paul and Silas. Now they have more missionaries going out to go start churches, to see people come to know the Lord, to see people discipled and going on. This church of Antioch is responsible for starting and influencing other churches around the world. Now, can't you tell God's doing something with this church? And with it, as we've seen in history, they're also going to be used to preserve this lineage of scriptures. Now, can you trust someone like this that God's already using to send out missionaries and do works in the world? That it's this lineage? Don't we have confidence that this lineage is the correct lineage from the scriptures? 
So let's come to the conclusion. The conclusion of these two lines. Now remember, we're going to talk about the Alexandrian line in detail next week. So it's going to talk about all the bad things. This week we've talked about the good things. However, we can still draw some conclusions. We have two separate lines of scripture. We have one that goes through Alexandria. The other one goes through Antioch. The Alexandrian line will have philosophy and religion interpreting the translation of God's word. We'll cover that in detail next session. The Antiochian line through Syria has Christians holding fast the word of God with the result of missionary work and spreading the gospel through the world. We hold to the received or traditional text which is of the Byzantine lineage based off the Syrian and Antiochian codexes. Remember we define codexes. This is their Bibles that they put together. Everywhere these Antiochian texts have gone and influenced, you will find revival, missions, and correct doctrine. We could prove that in history. Everywhere the Alexandrian text is gone, it is turned around and destroyed faith. And we'll see that in the light of history as well. So what we're covering tonight is trying to give you confidence from the Bible and from history that we have the correct lineage of text. We're trying to build up a case and trying to build up evidence for your, for your own edification, for your own learning, that we have the preserved line. We have the correct line. I want to come that I want to use the type of Bible that has been used to have missionaries and revival. I do not want to use the lineage of Bible that has in fact destroyed people's faith. We want to have the Bible that encourages and watches God work. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.